Okay, if you, um, if you haven't been here before, we're going through a series called The, the Path. And I have loved every section of this <coughs> I've been working through and haven't really thought about it before, this idea of the path. That there's, a, there's an outworking, there's a destination. As Jesus comes into the world, John the Baptist prepares him, prepares the way for him. And then um, Jesus comes, he's baptised, the Holy Spirit comes down to him, the Spirit of, in the form of a dove. The Father gives his approving words. And then we see Jesus um, doing his stuff, just going around and... and doing stuff and then we see the reaction of the people, he's healing people. What does that mean? Is he a, is he a prophet? Is he a healer? And then um, Jordan spoke a couple of weeks ago, <coughs> excuse me, Jordan spoke a couple of weeks ago and talked about you can't put new wine in old wineskins. And what Jesus was saying by that was you've got to expand your mind. This is something, I'm bringing something that you haven't known before and won't fit into the structures that you already have. And then when he, got, he went on to um, give some parables, you might remember that last week, Thomas spoke of that. He spoke of um, things like the kingdom of God, that the kingdom of God is not going to be um, a man coming with a huge army to, to rescue Israel. No, it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds, yet it grows, becomes a tree that fills the whole earth. He said that this, the kingdom of God that he's talking about would be something so valuable that they would give everything for it. It's like a pearl of great price. And he spoke of different kinds of soils and people who would listen to Jesus and go, yeah, or people who'd listen to Jesus and then the anxieties of the world or their worries would weigh them down, they'd forget about it, or those where it really took root. The, the seed of the kingdom of God really took root and the kingdom of God really took off. So as I'm reading through this, I'm thinking, wow, what are we going to find in the next chapter? That's my anticipation each week. What are we going to find here? Well, let's find out. Let's dig into Mark chapter 4. If you've got your Bibles, and you must have your Bible, whether in phone form or in um, paper form, open to Mark chapter 4. And starting from verse 35, it says, On that day, when evening, on that day, do you remember what's been happening that day? It's been an almighty, busy day for Jesus. He's been healing people. He's been um, teaching the people. In the previous chapter, it says that he hadn't had time even to take a meal. So from early in the morning till late at night, there's just people coming to him and he's giving and giving and giving and giving. And now it's come to the evening and uh, it's, it's, it's time for him to, to have a break. It says, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. So imagine the western shore. Uh, if you've ever been to Israel, if you go to Israel and you look at Lake Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee, you will see that it looks just like the Derwent River. We were amazed, weren't we, Anne-Marie? It looks just like the Derwent River. It's like you're standing on the western shore, you're looking over the eastern shore. So that's what he was doing. He was looking over the eastern shore. Um, it's a bit wider than our River Derwent. I think from Sandy Bay to Tramia is about 5 k's. The, um, Sea of Galilee about 12 k, so about double, it's probably take an hour or two on a, on a boat where you're following the wind to get over to the other side. It's two degrees warmer over the eastern shore, not really, but <laughs> Jesus was heading over there because he was heading to a place where he could have a rest because over that, on that eastern shore there were lots of Gentiles, mainly Gentile population, and it was a place called the Decapolis. Deca meaning 10, there were about 10 cities that through history had just had a kind of, certain kind of independence. So they were Gentile cities, they, each had, they were like city-states themselves. 
uh, produce their own coins. And so Jesus was going to a place where maybe the Jewish people wouldn't be following him and maybe where he wouldn't be hassled so much, maybe where he could get a rest um, to be able to do his healing ministry and teaching ministry again. So let's go over the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before, that other boats were with him. Mark's the only one that mentions this. Other boats were, were also along. So what that tells us, I guess, and there's a few other indications in the text, is that there was an eyewitness there. And we believe, uh, tradition tells us, that Mark got his information from Peter. So it's likely that Peter was along on the boat. And he said, yeah, we were in the boat and there were other boats along with us. So there arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, as Glenys has said. You can imagine, I don't know if you've ever tried, I, I can't sleep on the Spirit of Tasmania, let alone sleep in a fishing boat uh, on those hard, you know, frames of the boat. Maybe you've got a cushion, it doesn't seem like much. But Jesus was obviously exhausted because he was 100% man, 100% God, 100% man. He was tired, exhausted. They come to him and they woke him and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care that we're perishing? Perishing. Think about these people. These people are fishermen. These people would have sailed that stretch of water every day and every night. They were used to sailing at night because the winds were less in the night. They knew exactly how much that boat could take. They had been in storms before and they were scared out of their lives that they were going to die. Luke uses the Greek word seismos, the word that's used for an earthquake. This is a mighty, mighty storm. They don't wake Jesus for nothing. They are scared out of their lives. Jesus, it says, got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. That in itself is unusual. I don't know if you've ever been in a storm or if you've been in a storm at sea, but the wind may drop, but the seas don't stop sloshing around, do they? They'll continue doing that for quite a time. Here, there's a supernatural quiet. The wind is totally gone. The seas are perfectly calm. And then um, Jesus said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? And then it says they became very much afraid. That's funny, isn't it? You got this, it already said they were afraid. They were afraid of the waves. They were afraid of dying. And now Jesus says these words and they are very much afraid. Why is that? It's because I think they were starting to get an inkling of who this man was. Who is it? He goes on to say, they became very much afraid and said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And that question is just left hanging. Now we know from reading through Mark, and Mark knew when he read this exactly who Jesus was. But he's there framing the situation. And this is this pathway. Who is this man? Who is this man? And it's a bit like that experience in Isaiah. You know in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah's there in the presence of the Most High and he said, I am undone. Woe to me. I am undone. And these disciples realise this, no, this is no man. This is no just a prophet. Jesus is something far more to that and they get an inkling for uh, exactly who he is. 
even more so when you consider the context. They would have known the Old Testament well. Look at these verses. Psalm chapter... Is that going to come up? Psalm chapter 65. By awesome deeds you answer us in righteousness, God of our salvation. You who are the trust of all the ends of the earth and the farthest sea, who establishes the mountains by his strength, who is encircled with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves and the turmoil of the nations. Who does this? Yahweh, God, the Most High God. Psalm 89, you rule the surging of the sea. When its waves rise, you calm them. Psalm 107. Now, as we read through this, think of the experience of the disciples and then think about this, if, if this was brought to mind or whether it was given to them later, but see how accurately this fits. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised a stormy wind, which lifted the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like a drunken person and were at their wit's end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still so the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet so he guided them to their desired harbour. Yeah, this man was no man. This is God speaking. Well, if Jesus thought that he was going to have any rest, um, was quickly disabused of that notion. Read on in chapter 5. They get to the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Kind of reminds you of Samson, doesn't it? Reminds you of that superhuman strength that no bond is going to hold you. But this power, this supernatural power doesn't come from God. This is a supernatural power that comes from Satan and from the demonic side. So here unveiled, I think, in the next few verses is the way that Satan operates. Look at the way, look at the condition this man was in. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gashing himself with stones. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that boat coming into the harbour and then this man coming at you, this man who is screaming Screaming in the tombs, in the mountains, gashing himself with stones. Supernatural strength. And I thought when I read this, uh, you know, there's lots of occasions uh, where we read of, especially teenagers, cutting themselves. That's a, that's a regular thing, isn't it? And sometimes you'll see a young person, you'll see these little tiny lines where you say, yeah, this is a person that sometime in their life was cutting themselves. And why do they do that? Well, the psychologists tell us because their emotional pain is so great, um, there's something, there's some relief that comes through physical pain. And so I wonder as I read this, was he so deeply, was the emotional pain so great in this man that he was cutting himself, that he was screaming? You can see that he's in agony. 
And that's why I say this, this lifts the veil on, on Satan and his intention. Jesus said he comes to kill and to destroy. But sometimes it's not that obvious, is it? The Bible says that Satan can transform himself into an angel of light. And so I think especially for young people here, it's wise to think about the nature of Satan and the nature of this world. Because there's a lot of things in this world that seem good and fine. There's a lot of things here that seem to be the right thing. And there are things that you think, well, why do people, why do people worry about that? It's nice to have nice things. This world is very materialistic. It tells you to get gadgets and clothes and other things. Something very nice. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, is there? Or perhaps the Bible's quite strict in terms of its sexual code. What's wrong with exploring your sexuality in, terms, in, in any way that you want to? If it, if it makes you happy and you love the other person, what's wrong with that? And what's wrong if some people choose to take a, a drug and those drugs must be so good. The reason people take them is because the highs must be so high. You think, what's wrong with that? Well, the fact is that Satan is behind all of those things. And his desire is not as obvious as it is here, but he is here to kill and destroy. And those things will kill and destroy you. And those things will wreck your life. And that's exactly what Satan has in mind. So this man, what a wretched condition he's in. Seeing Jesus from a distance, it says he ran up and bowed before him. That's interesting. He bowed before him. What does that tell us? That tell us, tells us that instinctively those demon forces know they have no power over Jesus. There's no question about who's the superior in this relationship. As strong as that man is, as much power as those demonic, demonic forces have, they're no match for Jesus Christ. They bow before him. And then it says... Uh, yeah, bowed before him, shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High? Son of the Most High. Jordan, uh, two weeks ago, I think, said something which I hadn't really thought about before, but he said he noted the irony of when we read these stories and we read about his family, and his family thought he was nuts. And then the crowds around him didn't deny the healing, but they said it comes from the other source, it comes from Satan. Ironically, Jordan said, it was only the demons that actually got it right. This is the son of the Most High God. This isn't a, a messianic title. This is a deity title. The son of the Most High God. You might remember if that phrase resounds with you in Acts where Paul was heading along. Do you remember when he had that fortune teller behind him? Annoying him, just following him all the time and shouting out, these are slaves of the Most High God. They were right too. Paul and his friends were slaves of the Most High God. Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Same acknowledgement, actually almost same conversation. If you turn back to Mark 1, um, in verse 23, it says, There was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Yeah, those demons know. They shake when they come in the presence of Jesus, the Holy One of God. So, uh, 
It says, uh, what, and he was asking in verse 9, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. I've read that story many times, but I think this time when I read it through with that kind of, uh, uh, a shudder runs through me, Legion. When you think about the power of one demon spirit and what they can do. You know, in, in Mark chapter 9, actually there's an example there, again of the, the wickedness of these spirits, but in um, 9 and verse 16, a man brings his son, possessed with a spirit which made him mute. It says, and whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And a bit later he says that he, he's often been thrown into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Again, the wickedness of these spirits, but the power of those spirits. And Jesus said uh, on another occasion, he said, you know, watch out if you get rid of one spirit and then they bring seven more. You know, that's, that's going to be much worse for that man than one. This is, he calls himself legion. Now in the Roman army, there are 6,000 men in a legion. So I don't know if Jesus is saying, or if this demon is saying there's 6,000 of us, but there are obviously many, many, and perhaps if we, we know the stories that goes on, many thousands of demons in this man against Jesus. One Jesus, thousands of demon spirits. Let's see what happens. So he began to implore him. That's the demon again acknowledging who Jesus is and his power. He began to implore him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. Satan comes to kill and to destroy. Are we surprised that having not been able to totally destroy that man, they then turn their attentions to these pigs and to destroy them? And you might think, well, why did Jesus do that? Why did he, why did he send them out into the swine? Have you ever thought about that? Lots of Bible commentators have lots of ideas. But, but one of the things that seems most obvious is that if you're going to expel a demon for a person, it's not necessarily clear that that spirit is gone. And so people might say, yeah, the spirit's gone. He seems to be okay now. Might come back in half an hour or 24 hours or two days. In forcing them into the pigs, it was clear that those spirits were out of the man and into these swine and off to the sea they went. The herdsmen, it says, ran away and reported in the city and in the country and people came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and think about this man. Think about this man who was cutting himself, who was screaming, who was running in the, in the tombs and in the mountains. Think of this man's situation now. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down. Sitting, sitting down. He's not running around anymore. He's sitting down. It says that he was clothed. It doesn't tell you in this story, but in Luke it says, uh, it's a very strange phrase actually, it says he hadn't worn clothes for a long time. So this man had been naked for a long time. Now he's, in his, he's sitting down, he's calm, 
he's clothed, and what does it say about his mental situation? He was in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine, and they began to implore him to leave their region. That's interesting, isn't it? They didn't implore him, come back to our town. We have demon-possessed people. Come back to our town. We have people who need healing. They implored him to leave the place. That is um, pretty much what happens with Jesus. When Jesus comes and, um, and you're forced to confront Jesus, there'll be two responses. There's either walking to Jesus or walking away from him. There's either being attracted by Jesus or being repelled by him. And these men were repelled by him. Obviously, there was, there was financial cost involved. They just lost 2,000 animals. They weren't too happy to have that repeated. And so there's no record that Jesus ever went back to that place. That was an opportunity for them. You know, how does it seem to us? An opportunity to interact with the Son of God. They said, no, leave the place. So um, as he was getting into the boat, Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that he might accompany him. The underlying uh, Greek words for that, the Greek expression, is an expression for discipleship. It's used of uh, the call of the apostles earlier on in Mark. So this man was saying he wanted to go along with Jesus. He wanted to be discipled by him. He wanted to be a follower of Jesus. But Jesus did not let him, it says in verse 19. But he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. And he went away, that is the man, he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. They are just, I mean, what a day. What a day for that. Can you imagine being along for that trip with Jesus and, and kind of reflecting at night, just reflecting about what this day has been? But I wonder, did some of it have to happen at all? Like the storm, for example. Did Jesus not know the storm was going to happen, do you think? Could he have avoided the storm? Of course he could. There was something in that interaction, there was something in what happened, that miracle there that he knew was valuable for his disciples and that includes us. You will face storms in your life. You will face storms in your life. Paul said, it is through many tribulations that you'll enter into the kingdom of God. Peter, who may have been on that trip, said, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. You will have storms in your life. How many, put your hand up, have you had a storm in your life? Have you had a storm in your life? Yeah, well if you haven't, you will have a storm in your life. I've been in this church 25 years and I've seen people go through tremendous storms in their life. The loss of a child, what would that be like? That is an incredible storm to go through as a parent, to lose a child. To be in ICU, to have your life on a thread, your life totally dependent on those machines. Of those nurses. I've seen people in that situation. I've seen people have the storm of marriage breakdown. 
What is it like to lose your partner after many, many years? What would that feel like? Having people have had children rebel. People have had a terrible sickness or a terrible diagnosis or uh, unemployment. There will be storms in your life. I've had a, a large storm in my life. So when I was in my early 20s, I can remember sailing along a very calm sea in my early 20s. Like amazingly calm. I love my family. I loved Anne-Marie's family, so we were, we were married by that time. Um, I had the respect of people around me. I had lots of friends. I had a beautiful wife, beautiful children. I had a business which was ticking along nicely, calm, peaceful. And then as I started to explore what it was to follow Jesus and started to look for Jesus' storm clouds on the horizon, and then suddenly those things that I took for granted that were almost seemed in my control were no longer in my control. And one by one those things disappeared. And those that dis didn't disappear, there was great uncertainty and great, uh, great anguish. So Amory and I had not uh, really had an argument before then. But suddenly we're going divergent ways in terms of, our, in terms of faith. And so suddenly arguments where there were no arguments, would she stay? What would happen with the children? What would happen, it looked like I would lose my business as well. And I certainly would lose the family. And I would certainly lose all of my friends. That's a storm. What do you do when you're in a storm? You put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. That's what you do. You put your hand in the hand of the man who stilled the water. Thomas read us a verse last week, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We say that word flippantly, but when, when Christ is perfecting our faith, it's often through trial. Trials will perfect our faith. They will improve, improve our faith. What do trials accomplish. I noted down a few things here. What do trials accomplish? Firstly, I can tell you that when you're in a trial, it will give you perspective when you turn to Jesus. Because your trial is overwhelming. Whatever it is, the loss of the child or the ICU or the unemployment or whatever that thing is, is huge. It, it takes all of the horizon and I thought of this verse in 2 Kings. You know the experience where Elisha and his servant were, the town that they were in, the, the government of uh, Aram, I think it is, were after them. So they're in a city, in a walled city, and the city is entirely surrounded by an army. Like, no way out. And the servant says, that's it, we're done. We are totally surrounded. And Elisha says to his attendant, oh, he doesn't say to the attendant, he says to God, he says, open my servant's eyes. And he opens his eyes and what does he see? Fiery chariots and an army surrounding. Suddenly there's perspective. Yeah, there's this human army that's here. <laughs> but look, and Elisha says, there are more with us than are with them. It gives us perspective. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he, that these... The sufferings that we have are momentary and light, 
Well, they're not momentary in light. If you've experienced those things, they're not momentary in light. But they are when compared with eternity. They are when compared with... And so we get this perspective. Okay, okay, Jesus is with me. My situation is quite different from if Jesus wasn't with me. I now see the horizon. I see what this problem is. And suddenly, instead of being this big, it's this big. And we can manage this together. Storms glorify God and help us to grow in knowledge of his word. They glorify God because our weakness just shows the, the greatness of God. And we, we can lean into that. We can just lean and recognise, yeah, we can't do everything. We're not always in control, but God is. And then we're drawn to his word. And those passages, the passages that you have in your storm time as you're reading through the Bible, you'll find verses that are so powerful. And you'll find verses you've never heard before. And you who have been used to reading through the Psalms and going, this is so boring and repetitive, are suddenly going, hey, have you read Psalm 38? Have you read Psalm 42? I mean, these are amazing Psalms because that's the experience that God gives you to lean into his word. They remind us of our frailty and their de our dependence on him. We're pretty independent people, aren't we? Australians, generally. We're individualistic and we say we can handle this. Yeah. We have to acknowledge our own frailty. A trial will do that. As in my case, these things I had under my control, I no longer had under my control. That was the best thing that could have ever happened for me. You don't want to go through life thinking you've got everything under control. And our dependence then on God grows. I'm the vine, Jesus said, you are the branches. That's the way it is. Don't think you can be an independent branch from this vine. Uh, what else do they do? They provide us with the tools to help others experiencing trial. That's a valuable one that's not to be overlooked, that the comfort that God gives us in our trials, we are then able to comfort others. I think sometimes uh, if a trial works very well, that'll be exactly what you want to do. And you'll have had this experience of unemployment. You see someone else who's feeling depressed because they're unemployed and you can come alongside them. And you don't have to exchange too many words because they know exactly what you felt. If you've ever lost a child, no one knows what that feels like unless you have. But what a valuable ministry it is that you can sit beside someone and say, I know what that's like. They correct us. Uh, the Bible says if um, the one who God loves, he disciplines. They correct us. They change us. We might have been heading in this direction. God wants us to head in this direction. A trial will do that for us. He'll correct us. He'll, he'll change us. What else? They deepen our prayer life. Has that been your experience? You've all been through trials. I want to see some nodding heads here. It deepens your prayer life. I can remember um, prayers of mine that were almost inarticulate. They were just like, help me. Because I can't, because I, uh, there's no framework anymore to go, help me in this way. God, I really like this to happen. Or I really like that to happen. And you're just going, God, help me. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit will join in where we can't find the words. These, these inarticulate words of the heart. It will deepen your prayer. You will never go back to a, a, a prayer life that just consists of praying before your meals and a, a cursory prayer here and there. It will, be, it will deeply change you. They prepare us for eternity. I guess that's the way we've got to see trials, isn't it? The trials are not just uh, for no reason, but they are a preparation. The verse there, maybe, um, maybe it would be good to read, Romans 5, 3 to 6, because Paul kind of articulates exactly what a trial will do for us. This may have been your experience or if it becomes your experience. 
hold on to these words. Romans 5, uh, 3 to 6. Okay, it says, We will also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Yeah, God is preparing a people for eternity and he will do that through trial. Well, uh, they also give us a testimony. People, love to, people often say, I'd love to have a testimony. I'd love to have a testimony that I was a, you know, a, a drug addict or a serial murderer and I came to Christ. It would be great to be able to tell that story. Well, look, you can have a testimony when God brings you through trial. A very valuable testimony of the power of God and say, look, I was lost. There was no way out. I couldn't see a situation where this thing would change. And yet God came and there was maybe a peace that was instilled in me. A, a crazy peace because my life hadn't changed at all. It was still in disarray. But I had this peace that came from Christ and he brought me with us. God tells us he'll never leave us nor forsake us. That man in Mark chapter 5, Jesus didn't need to preach in that place because the man with the legion, with the spirit, would go back to his friends and his family. And his friends and his family were the people who knew him best. And he'd just say, well, look at, look at who I am. I had an interaction with Jesus, the Son of God, and this is the changed man. That is the testimony that you can have. And we prove the reality of Christ's presence with us. He says that he will never leave us or forsake us. How many things are there in Romans 8 that say, well, well this will stop you from the love of Christ? How many things? Were there two or three? Were there four or five? The things that, yeah, they'll, they'll stop you, admittedly, from the love of Christ. No, nothing. There is nothing in heaven and on earth. There's not, not even death will prevent you from having the love of Christ. When I was reading through this, um, when I first got the assignment of this chapter, and I'm, I'm reading through it, I was thinking of a person, um, a Bible commentator by the name of William Barclay, He'll be known to older people, probably not to younger people, so you, you date yourself if you even know the name, but he's a Bible commentator, and he was a guy that taught um, New Testament Greek, actually Hellenistic Greek, for 30 years, and he wrote a series of commentaries. And his commentaries were just still, are still superlative. They, they bring the culture of the first century into the modern. And he speaks, he's a very humble man, he was a minister for a while before he was a lecturer and then professor. Uh, but he brings the everyday life and he brings it in, in common wordage. But he had a storm in his life. And I remember that just before he wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, uh, he had a huge tragedy in his life. So he had two children, a boy and a girl. And his daughter, Barbara, was 21 and she was about to be married. And her and her fiancé and the neighbour's kid, who was about 12, um, went on a boating trip. Beautiful day, sunny day in Ireland, and they took off in their yacht, um, and they didn't come back. And they had a number of weeks. Um, they eventually found the boat. They couldn't find the bodies. It took, I think, four weeks before the first body was washed up, and then his daughter. So he had four weeks incredible worry and then there's hope maybe they've survived somehow hope against all hope devastating 
And so if you read his commentary on Mark, which was the year before, it's quite technical about fishing votes and about storms and all that kind of stuff. But if you read his commentary on Matthew, there's a slightly different tone because he'd been through the storm. And these, were, this, these were his words in this commentary on Matthew. He said, the meaning of this story, the story of the sling of the storm, is not that Jesus stopped a storm in Galilee. The meaning is that wherever Jesus is in the, storm, the storms of life become a calm. It means that in the presence of Jesus, the most terrible tempest turns to peace. The lesson of the story, the meaning of this story, the fact of this story is that when the storms of life shake our souls, Jesus is there. And in his presence, the raging of the storm turns to, to a peace that no storm can ever take away.